quite apart from the lying and the very bad PR, the lack of empathy. He came across as a complete creep. On to my challenge. Yes, um, the journal. In the moving house, I've lost my journal. Oh, well, it's a disaster. It's really important to make the point that no other European has ever been immersed in an Indigenous culture for as long or as deeply as William Buckley was, 32 years. When Olivia Coleman first emerged, Mum said the pearls are all wrong. She never had three strands like that. <laughs> there were three in a row. Sydney is a much more superficial town. I didn't you know, say that, Sydney listeners. I did not say that. Our guest from Sydney said that. It's <laughs> mutton dressed up as lamb, but it doesn't exactly look like lamb anymore either, Sydney. <laughs> Food porn is one that really upsets me. Sport porn. People use the word porn now to describe anything that's sort of hedonistic, over the top. Porn is porn. It's not something you associate with meals, parents or sport. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 109 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I am Corrie Perkin and I'm here with my good friend and fellow potty, Caroline Wilson. Hello. Hi Corrie. How are you going? Great to be here on this beautiful spring day. It is hooray, finally in Melbourne it is a beautiful day and we have a very special guest joining us today, Caro. An old friend, Corrie. Old in which sense of the word? Well, old in terms of he's an old friend. He's actually younger than us, but he's an old friend of both of us. He always, he always looking look- a hell of a lot older than both of you, let me tell you. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you always looked older than us, Gary Linnell. I this have is, always looked old, haven't I? We, we have been joined by an old colleague of ours, for, old colleague of ours from the age, Gary Linnell, who is uh, an author of several books, a journalist of extraordinary high distinction. He has, among other things, worked for Channel 9. He has been editorial director of Fairfax. He was the one who hired Caro to become football writer for the age, sorry, chief football writer of the age, when you were sports editor of the age. Gary, that was your fine appointment. And then long, de- long time ago. Yeah, and then he left before I took over oh, the job. Never forgiven me for that. <laughs> I had to get out of there. When I first met uh, Caro, I didn't say a word to her for six months because I didn't want to interrupt her. <laughs> oh, you've been working on that one for a while. No, Rodney Dangerfield I, joke. Can, can I also say, if people are noticing a certain professionalism about Gary and the microphone, it's because he spent four years in Sydney as a radio presenter, a.k.a. shock jock, as they call them in Sydney. Oh, we weren't shock jocks. I was working with um, John, John Stanley. Stanley. So we did breakfast for about four years, which was, a, um, was fantastic. But getting up at 2.30 in the morning... That takes years off your life. Oh, gee, it's hard when you're earning half a million a year, though, isn't it? It's permanent jet lag, isn't it? (laughs) Someone said to me. It just doesn't stop, does it? (laughs) It's like permanent jet lag. You'd go through the rest of the day. Like, you'd get home by about midday, one o'clock, but then you're just sort of like a zombie for the rest of the day, and you're irritable. You know, you're always just on edge because you're just so tired all the time. So, And you try to get to bed at 8.30, 9 o'clock. You inevitably don't get to sleep until 10.30 or 11.00. And suddenly you're running on three or four hours sleep every night right through the week and then you crash on a Friday and you're no good to anyone on the weekend as well. So it does take years. That's why I look up the way I do now. Well, I yeah, think but I no, disagree. But no, you're a writer in a study having a lovely time. And the reason yeah. you're here today is to talk about your new book, Buckley's Chance, the incredible true story of William Buckley and how he conquered a new world. Indeed. Congratulations. And he, and he conquered several worlds, actually. It's, he did. It's a... It's a um, it's a story that's been with me ever since I was a young kid because I grew up in Geelong and um, we'd go on family holidays and, and weekends down to Ocean Grove and Point Lonsdale where Buckley's Cave is um, just there on those um, sandstone cliffs underneath the lighthouse and I'd say to my dad, who was William Buckley? 
And he said, oh, well, he was this big white fella who uh, roamed around Geelong and the Ballerine Peninsula and lived with the local Aboriginal tribes for about 30 years. And then he'd stop, like everyone else in Geelong, because no one else knew the story or the background. We were never taught in high school who William Buckley was. See, we were. Isn't that funny? We learned about him in junior school. Did you? And so I had a fascination with him too. And, of course, Corrie... Mornington Peninsula claims him as well because that's where he started. And well, Tasman- the Sullivan and Bay settlement was yeah. where the Calcutta arrived, bearing um, 308 convicts from the UK, and they set up a little settlement because they were worried about Port Phillip being taken over by the French because they were up in Sydney, but there'd been French ships seen in Bass Strait, and they thought if the French get a foothold here in Port Phillip, they can dominate the Pacific. So they sent this shipload of convicts and a few free settlers out here And they got to Sorrento and they couldn't find any fresh water. Everyone got dysentery. Everyone was sick. And uh, over that Christmas period of 1803, Buckley and four or five other convicts escaped on this moonlit night into the bush. Now, three of them kept going. One was shot. A couple just turned back because they just found it horrific. They were trying to make their way to Sydney, weren't they? Yeah, they thought Sydney was just um, a couple of of miles up (laughs) the road. And China was just a little bit further on. And uh, unfortunately, they they kept taking a left and they went right around Port Phillip Bay. Uh, They ended up down near Swan Island and then they moved a little bit further around near Indented Head and they could actually see um, one of the ships, the Ocean, which was the supply ship for the Calcutta, anchored just off Sorrento. They lit fires trying to sort of get be seen. They wanted to go back, basically. They'd had enough. They'd been eating shellfish and they were starving. They were on the point of dehydration. Um, and there were some Aboriginal tribes in the area, the Wadarung, who were following them. Two of them decided to go back. They were never heard from again. Buckley said, no, I'm not going to go back and be put in irons and probably flogged to within an inch of my life because that's what they did when they returned to camp. So he kept moving. And we don't know how long he kept going for, maybe a week or probably several months. Um, and he came across this... Um, a mound of earth with a a spear sticking out at the top of it. And he took this spear because he was so malnourished and so dehydrated that he used it as a crutch. And as he kept walking, three Aboriginal women saw him and they began wailing and beating their chests and tearing their hair because they thought they'd seen a ghost. And they summoned their men. They came back. They did the same thing. And then they welcomed So the spear had obviously belonged to an elder who died. It belonged to a, a, a warrior of the tribe who had just passed away and they'd buried him that was his grave and, and come Buckley back as, was come back and as they a look at fella. Buckley and there was this I guess mythology within Aboriginal culture that if they saw someone with white skin you were reincarnated or you were a spirit raised from the dead so they called him Moringirk or Moringirk uh, which literally translated means a spirit risen from the dead and they welcomed him in and uh, it's really important to make the point that no other European has ever been immersed in an indigenous culture for as long or as deeply as William Buckley was, 32 years. But, but when you started, and you told it, I remember running into you or having a lovely catch up with you at Ron Carter's funeral at the MCG and, and Gary said, I said, what are you doing? Because there's always something, he's always doing something different in the world of newspapers, radio, TV. Or, and he said, I'm writing a book about William Buckley. Was this before or after you'd been to the William Buckley Opera? This is well before. <laughs> I haven't told you about this. There's an opera. 
I've heard and about it, yeah. At the Rosebud, um, yeah. I went and saw it at the Rosebud Community Centre. Unfortunately, as I've said several was times that... on this podcast, the guy who played William Buckley was about five foot and looked like Basha Hawley. You just have to close your eyes. You can just picture it. But he had a magnificent voice, guess. It, oh, that's, that's It was very thing, funny. It? it was very funny. But I, I told you I'd, I'd become fascinated. My brother, who's bought your book and really enjoying it, and um, he um, is fascinated by him too. And there was a book at a house we rented years ago at the beach. We used to read about him. And yet, and you said, but he's, no one's ever really explored his history as in, because he, he fought in the Napoleonic yeah, look, Wars, He was born he? in 1782 in this little yeah. town called Martin, a little village. And it was like every other rural village uh, during the uh, Industrial Revolution. Um, they were at these crossroads in history where they still believed in fairies in the garden. They had a massive sessile oak tree in this village. It was the biggest in England. And they would take the bark, rub it on their hands to get rid of warts, ward off evil spirits. They sound like and, my kind of people. Yeah, oh, fan, look, fan, but what it did... <laughs> Read he, horoscopes. <laughs> he was raised in this mythology, Jokes. but he was, he was, um, his mother was a 16-year-old unwed woman in this small village and her, her parents were farmers. We don't know who his father was. She handed the baby over to her parents because in a, a couple of years later, she ended up marrying a guy from another village and moved away and ended up having four children with him. And so he was raised by Jonathan and Martha. They had you know one acre and two roods and one perch of, of land. Um, and then they apprenticed him as a bricklayer and he hated that. So he joined the militia and ended up in the uh, King's Regiment, the 4th Own, and they went off to the Netherlands in 1799 to fight uh, Napoleon's troops. Um, and it was a crushing defeat for the English. They lost 12,000 men. Buckley was injured. We still don't know how he was wounded. We think it could have been a, a musket ball that went through his hand, but he recovered. He was only 17 or 18, went back to England, and then the next you hear about him is in 1802 in the Sussex Advertiser, page four, there's a little paragraph there and it says, two men of the regiment, William Buckley and William Marmon, were charged with stealing two small pieces of Irish cloth. But you suggest that they didn't, that well, they may no, not Buckley, have, Well, Buckley himself told his biographer in, eight, in the 1850s that it was a setup, right, that he hadn't stolen the cloth. We don't know because there's no transcript of the court case and there probably he probably wasn't represented anyway. He was sentenced to hang and then they commuted that to uh, transportation for life. God, so it's a rough sentence, isn't it? Well, no, hang on a minute. There were two, over 200 crimes. A lot of it went on. Two, it 200 went crimes on. on the statute books in England at that time carried the death penalty. But what I, what I was um, perplexed about reading your book is it's, it's a roll of cloth. What would William Buckley, a young man, in his 19 or 20, whenever he was, what would he want with a roll of well, cloth? Well, he says it was a setup because a woman, the wife of another soldier, asked him to carry it across the yard, and that's where he was arrested carrying it. But he was charged with breaking into this draper's shop. Cloth was very valuable back then. Yeah, they were at war with France. They were at war with Italy, the, the big textile so manufacturers. So he, he could on sell it and make a buck. Yeah, there was a lot of money in cloth. I mean, a, an, an outfit with really good Irish cloth or uh, Engl- uh, French cloth, that would cost a year's wages. Because it, so when, when you told me about this and I said, well, what, what possibly more is there to know about William Buckley? So... And well, it, so the thing with it must have been Buckley, very hard to research. I mean, there must have been so many dead ends. But what did you find out that we don't already know? I, I, the more interesting aspects, look, I think there's 
his time has come, William Buckley, 200 years on, because there's this renewed, I, I think, interest and enthusiasm in Indigenous culture here. We, we yep. see it through Dark Emu with Bruce Pascoe's book. And Jock Sarong's um, Preservation. Yeah, and I just, I was having a look at some of the top selling books the other day in nonfiction. Half of them have got an ind- Indigenous theme running through them. So uh, you know, th- there is a wave of interest in that. But I also, I was fascinated by what happened to Buckley when he re-emerged after his 30 years with the Wadarung and encountered John Batman and John Pascoe Faulkner, sociopath, and the other one was an Aboriginal murderer, uh, thief. I mean, shocking people. These are the people who were celebrated as the co-founders of Melbourne for more than a century until we started wisening up to them. And yet you fell in love with the 19th century. Well, you know what I loved about it is that I fell in love with the 19th century, but I fell in love with that period because he came back to a world full of backstabbers, um, massive egos, people with ruthless ambition, and it reminded me of my time at Channel 9. <laughs> but, boom, boom. but it was also it, it was also a stark uh, contrast, too, to the harmonious, uh, rather friendly environment and certainly community-driven uh, well, organisation of the Indigenous cultures. Yeah. And for 30 years, Buckley had this fantastic life because he wasn't engaged in the the tribal warfare that was going on uh, would occasionally erupt. Um, so he wasn't allowed to fight in those ones because he was seen as this spirit. But he was certainly seen as a man of respect, a Nirangata or a, an Arweet at one stage. At what and point, he had, at what point he had did children they, too, didn't well, he? Yeah, what, this, point did they, yeah, what point did they realise he wasn't a ghost? <laughs> there's a very fascinating line. It's one line in one of the journals where um, around Port Phillip settlement in about the 1840s, and this is after Buckley has departed what is now Melbourne, for Van Diemen's Land. But they say there is a striking, beautiful-looking, lighter-skinned Aboriginal girl seen in one of the camps, and she is always pointed out as one of Buckley's daughters. And that's all we know. That's so, all so at know. some point they've realised he's not a ghost. There is no doubt real, that, that he's, he's a real man. There was a I baby. Suspect, there was a child in the opera. Yeah, there's yeah. there's no doubt that his his DNA. <laughs> that, that reliable source. <laughs> his, his DNA though is probably out there somewhere. Wow. And at the moment we've had a few approaches to make a movie out based on the book, and. Um, uh, oh, you've got to the, do it. Well, I was talking to one of the producers the other day, and I said. We need a love interest, don't we? Because it's a movie, okay? So it'll be based on the book, but you can actually take it a little bit more and yep. imagine a little bit more. And what if you have this um, young girl starting off the movie saying, my father was a ghost? Because oh, probably, God. Oh, you have, haven't lost your touch, have thank you? Thank you very much. But she probably never got to meet him because in 1837, two years after he had been working with the colonial settlers in Melbourne, He'd had enough. He was trapped between two cultures. The, some of the Aboriginal people didn't trust him anymore. Um, uh, there were a lot of his enemies within the col- uh, colonialists who uh, thought he could amass an army of Aboriginals and take them on. Buckley himself was disgruntled, um, disappointed over the way the Aboriginal people were being treated. Um, not just um, their lands being seized, but you know, occasional hunting parties, but also the, the diseases that were being yeah, and introduced. And alcoholism you talk alcohol about. And mm. bags of sugar. Bags of sugar were being unloaded on these boats. The sheep by the millions were coming over and eating all of the, the myrnong, the yam daisy, the, the natural food. And um, But the sugar, I mean, everyone was struck by the Port Phillip um, Aboriginals about how magnificent they looked. The men were more than six foot tall. But the, the most striking aspect were the bright white teeth. 
they couldn't get over the fact that they had white teeth because most of these settlers and people from Van Diemen's Land barely had a, a tooth uh, in their head or, and they were yellowed and blackened because of the sugar and the rum and, and whatever they ate. And once they unloaded the sugar, they brought in the venereal diseases, they brought in the contagious diseases. Suddenly you went from an estimated population of about 30,000 Aboriginals in Victoria um, down to about 1,500 within two generations. Oh, isn't it tragic? It's and just a tragic. Pro- a history professor has labelled it the fastest land grab in history anywhere in the world. Caro mentioned earlier and uh, that people all over claim William Buckley as their own, but the fact that he ended up in Tasmania by choice, and there I think at Battery Point there is a memorial for yeah, it's him. A, it's so a beautiful the little Tasmanians park. also yeah. claim him. They do, they do indeed. It's called Buckley's Rest. And um, his bones are in there somewhere. Not far from Errol Flynn's little and, memorial park too. Yeah, and I think this is in <laughs> what the, an interesting pair. In, in the book, apart from his indigenous experiences, in the book there is a lot more information now about what happened to him when he went to Van Diemen's Land. And this is why he's such a fascinating character because he's kind of like the Forrest Gump of the 19th century. He keeps bumping into all of these famous people and people yep. who create history. So he has breakfast down in Van Diemen's Land with Sir John Franklin who is the Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land. Um, a, a year later, he goes back to England and is appointed to head the Northwest Expedition. So they're looking for the famed passage between through the Arctic that will allow Europe to set up a trading passage with China. And it's a fabled passage. No one's ever been able to prove it exists. Uh, Franklin sets off with two ships. They become ice-locked and they end up dying. And it's about 100 years later, they discover the, the bones in one of the ships. And then 150 years later, scientists do tests on the bones and find that they were boiled and there are teeth marks on them. Oh. So we know how that ended. <laughs> Not well. Well, now, it ended okay for someone. Someone got a last meal out of it. Gary, but, you're, you're going to stick around and do our regular podcast yes. with us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Corey, the book is called Buckley's Chance, the incredible true story of William, William Buckley and how he conquered a new world. Now, you, you make a good argument that Buckley's Chance is clearly relating to William Buckley. And, yeah. not, and not the department store. These people who study the history of words, they're called etymologists. They've been at war for probably 70 or 80 years debating this. There was a Buckley's and Nun, obviously, the department store in Melbourne. Um, but there are racehorses going around. You can see them in the newspapers in the 1860s and 70s called Buckley's Chance. Um, I bumped into a woman the other day who was 85. She grew up in New Zealand. She said, we always said Buckley's Chance oh, over how... there. <laughs> yeah. And we always it's thought it was William Buckley. And because I've written the book, I've now decided that saying comes <laughs> from William Buckley. Oh, no, you make a good argument. You make a really good argument. Uh, Gary, we hope that you're in Melbourne in a couple of weeks because we would love you to come to our Christmas show, if you would. Come love down. to be there. <laughs> come, come and visit. This is our chance to just have a quick um, plug of the Christmas podcast uh, Carol and I are doing on Tuesday, December the 10th, 6.30 to 8.30 at Bell's Hotel in South Melbourne, up on the rooftop there. Hopefully it'll be a lovely night. If you would like to join us, because lots of our listeners are coming along, but we still have a few seats left, please email Tara and you can contact her events at crocmedia.com or you can phone Tara on double eight two five six six. That's Melbourne, obviously. And the details to all of this are on our Facebook page and also our show notes as well. Uh, We have a thing, Gary, each month we do a challenge. Uh, Some of us have been more successful during the year with our challenges than others. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> My, November's been good for me, though. And November's been, been good for you. How is your November challenge going, <laughs> It's the Caro? most fun challenge I've ever, was to go and see as many films as I could from the British Film Festival. What? Isn't and that I, difficult, Carrie? Isn't it's that hard? Gosh. I'm thinking, oh, you're going off alcohol. or oh, no, She's we, tried that, that twice. No, She's done that for two months. No, February was successful. I feb fasted. Corrie, thank you very much. July. I'm... How many movies did you see? Well, this week I've seen four movies, but only two of them. Oh, three from the British Film Festival. Two of them I saw with you, Corrie. One was um, Fisherman's Friends, which was just a lovely Feel film good set movie. in Cornwall. Corrie oh, and I've I seen walked... the trailer for that. That looks fantastic. You'd love it. Yeah. It's it very formulaic. I mean, you know what's going to and happen. And it's set in Doc Martin's village, so which is what is it? Port, Port Isaac, Isaac, which is yeah. called Port Wen in the Doc Martin show. But it's um, a story of. A true story, based on a true story of a group of fishermen who form a singing group. I mean, it's not like they're doing it because they're they're suffering hard times. They just do it because they love singing. They sea chanties, and then and suddenly they go to the top of the charts. Bad, bad air group of um, record producers from London, hot shots from London, go down there on a stag weekend. Um, the expensive yacht they've organised fails to materialise, so they. One of them gets to know the locals. He stays behind. A bit sort of like Coming Home, one of those yeah. films. But it's a lovely film. And it's got our new favourite actress in it, Tuppence Middleton. Yes. Who was also in the Downton Abbey movie. The other one I saw more, and you, I saw with you, with some official secrets with Kira Knightley, which is a true story of the woman who leaked details of, well, basically of how the US tried to bribe the UN to agree to go to war with Afghanistan and, and to try and say with that Iraq. They're, that they're, sorry, wrong I, I war. Love the way that Iraq. Women, I love the way that women go along on a movie date and it's okay, but when two blokes go along to the movies, it's kind of a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. Is that you're, you're kind of looking around. It doesn't happen that really? often in my world. I'm going to see a movie next week with a mate of mine. And um, we were discussing it the other day, saying, oh. you know, it's, what time are we going to go? Because we don't want to look like a couple. Well, what's wrong with that? What's Nothing wrong with, wrong with like that? No, no, like I'm not saying there's anything wrong outrage with that. From the, outrage from the Greek of, chorus. No, no but, but you're right. Of, if you no. see two women at a movie, you don't think they're a couple. You just think they're no, friends at a Brendan movie. Does Brendan go to the movies with mates? No, no he goes with you. me. He goes yeah. with me. There when, you go. In oh, fact, well. we went well, to one on. He's told to go to the movies. No, we went to one on Saturday that I'm going to talk about in. A books screen food BSF, but Corrie, um, both Kira Knightley is brilliant. In We've already talked secrets. about this. We talked about it last week. Oh, did yeah, we? What was yeah. the Remember other one? I said, I said um, that that um, I thought that she could be up for an Oscar for that or I'm an Oscar sorry. nomination. But that's the other one we saw together. Yes. On, on to my challenge. Yes, um, the journal in the moving house. I've lost my journal. Oh, <laughs> well, it's a disaster. Jane, don't laugh. That it's is really a serious. All my memories of the last week. It's only, so, it's, Gaz, what I was going to do is I, term, because, because my life at the moment is just kind of imploding with lots of activity and I'm having a bit of a memory issue. I don't know whether it's old age. No, it's not. I can, I'm just, I can I've relate got, to that. I've got a lot on. So I decided for my November challenge I would start a journal, which I've never done in my life, and it's been quite handy. But in the move, I've lost it. Can't find. I tried to find it this morning before coming in. And you can't remember what and you I can't remember. either. <laughs> All the great <laughs> ideas for the podcast. Column ideas, gone, gone. So what can I say? You'll find it, Corrie. Do you, you reckon? Will, yeah, I'm not sure about that. You will. Um, no, you'll find it. You, and it's only early days. It's only 
I suppose it's past mid-November now. On, but the, you... on the upside, though, can I just go back over a couple of, uh, not to rub it in, but um, a couple of my other challenges. I went to yoga last Saturday. Yep. So good. I'm now a regular at Maggie's beautiful studio. Um, I'm still walking everywhere. That was my May challenge, I think. Yep. The April challenge, which was the veggie patch, not so good over winter. I went and had a visit of it the other day, a real play in it, and it's pretty much just mint and parsley and spring onions. I don't know what happened to the broccoli. I don't know where they've gone. They've probably gone down. Mm. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not sure what happened to them. All over it, isn't it? I'll anyway, take a photo of my VG patch to make you feel So there jealous. we go. Now, Gary, we did ask you to um, uh, to join us with a couple of conversations here, and I'm not sure whether you've caught up with The Crown Series 3 yet. Yeah. I, I watched the first series. My wife's watched it all. She loves it. Yes. I just couldn't get into it. Oh. You're joking. No. How could you Even, not? No. Brendan's not really a royalist. Well, he's, he's not a royalist. But um, he's found it fascinating because he doesn't know. He's This is new info for him. Oh, he's never read any royal biographies or anything like no, you and I so have. The, or Women's Weekly. Well, Series 3, where we're up to now, and I'm sure you and I have very strong thoughts about it. We'll go it over. It premiered on Sunday night, everyone, yep. so it's now streaming on Netflix. I've got that one right. And, Corrie, you have. One of um, the special guests at our Christmas function on December 10 is my mother, Julia, along with Peggy O'Neill, the Richmond chairman, and... Anna from the Op Shop, and Conrad Marshall, who's got another book out and a lovely excerpt on Marlon Pickett in the papers on the weekend. However, do not get mum started on some of the historical errors in Series 3. Well, everyone's starting to pick it apart, aren't they? Yep, They're already. highlighting a lot of the huge errors. It doesn't really matter. It's television. Well, you know, I, I, look, I would tend to... It's fictionalised based on... <laughs> no, uh, one premise. part of me wants to agree with you on that, but I think that the first series in particular, Series 2, a mm, bit more relationship-driven, but Series 1 was historically accurate as far as we who read royal biographies know and that kind of passing of the baton from George the Sixth to his young daughter. Uh, you know, that was all pretty real. But the conversations and, they had... We don't know what they said to each no, other. No, th- th- there were some things that mum. You even, don't know what William Buckley said found, to his missus. I mean, the other night, darling, I'm not really a ghost. When when Olivia Coleman first emerged, mum said the pearls are all wrong. She never had three strands like that. <laughs> there were three in a row. No, but I mean, mum said it's a small thing. But the thing it's she important. really took umbrage with was she said the queen was never. It's a lot about the Queen and Princess Margaret, who goes on this American tour. And isn't Princess and, Margaret the party animal? Yep. Yeah. Oh, and complete grog dog, fagger. And in series three, they they suggest that the Queen is rather envious of Margaret's uh, popularity allure, in allure. America. She, and I they, don't think the Queen ever worried about that because she's the Queen. Mum said. Mum said she was so close to her. They spoke every morning on the phone. Margaret was definitely probably resentful of her lack of role in life, but there was no way the Queen would have not wanted to hear about Margaret being a smash hit in the States and well, the term Margaretology. No, spo- no spoil well, alerts. Wouldn't it make a much not. better series if Margaret had have become Queen? <laughs> what sort of monarchy would we have had? Well, a, a pretty poor one, and we'll, we'll get on to Prince Andrew in a minute. But, Corrie... Olivia Coleman. Every, every generation has one. As as the Duke of Edinburgh points out in Series 3, there was um, the Duke of Clarence, who was a disaster, and, you know, there was Queen Victoria. So she was straight down. The stayed know. one. Yep. yep. And, so, then, and then there was George VI, who was a good, solid king, but there was his naughty brother who, who abdicated, Edward VIII. I mean, for every generation, the Prince of the, – the Duke of Edinburgh would argue – 
in this series. So someone's every, made up his dialogue. Boring, boring, reliable <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah. There's a there's a bad egg, but who's sort of more interesting? But Corey Olivia Coleman. Now we love her. She's become the new actress of our time. She's in everything. In fact, she was on um, Who Do You Who the Hell Am I or whatever that show is on SBS last night as well, tracing her roots in India. But you text me. During oh, the show, yeah, I wasn't sure. So poor my, casting, isn't it? Well, I, look, I feel uh, Olivia. One of Olivia Coleman's great attributes is her timing, and there is a comedic undertone often to her work, or a wit, a wit and an intelligence. I'm not sure one would call the Queen witty, and you get this feeling that there's this sort of this this black humour with the Queen, and I'm not sure that that really is there. I think the Queen herself is probably pretty one-dimensional, and she gets Olivia Coleman's face, she often gets that furrowed brow, and it seems like the Queen is worrying so much about all of these things that are happening in the 1960s. I can't imagine that this is actually what happened. And her appearance is wrong to me. I it's mean, wrong. the Queen was an attractive woman in the 60s and the whole premise is that she's losing her looks and starting to look old and there's a stamp that comes out and she's a bit sad about her profile. I, I don't think it's accurate at all. And then I think the Queen Mother is completely wrong. I'm, I love Hel- Helena Bonham Carter, but not happy with her as Margaret. Oh, I think she, I don't mind her as Margaret. Oh, well, well it's uh, just too ditzy for me. Yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe anyway. that's right. And I'll tell you, I'm going to have to watch it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to have to put aside Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is my Netflix <laughs> indulgence. Stop it. And Atypical. Hey, I'm just, I'm now just there's done, a show. So, ga- so Fleabag. Gaze- have you done Fleabag no, yet? Oh, that is brilliant. So, Gaz, if you were the media advisor to Prince Andrew, who apparently left the firm a couple of, a few weeks ago when they heard that this this um, I, I would have done this, the same. This interview was said, coming I'm up. I'm out of here before um, this car crash takes place. What would you be telling a post-car crash interview, which we saw on the weekend, what would you be suggesting the uh, the next steps should be for Prince Andrew and the royal family? I honestly don't know what the next step is after that interview because why would you do it in the first place? You've, you've said you have nothing to hide, so why go on air and look so uncomfortable and awkward saying it? And all, all the evidence of telling fibs because Did you believe all that it? classic Did you believe blinking. Him, I don't believe a word Do you word believe him? him? No. No, I didn't. And why did they let him do it in the palace? Oh, and then why did he take the reporter on a tour of Buckingham Palace? What a oh, showy, offy thing. It's bizarre. But is it, quite, is it, a, quite a, sorry, quite no. apart from the lying and the very bad PR, the lack of empathy. Oh, I mean, the, these, these young women have been used as sex slaves, the most horrific story, and he's sort of kicking himself on a daily basis and I let down the side and not befitting of a member of the royal family. It's not befitting of anyone. He came across as a complete creep. And the whole sweating thing, interestingly, overnight there were some images posted from a Saint-Tropez party he attended, I think it was in 2007 or 2008, and he's dancing in a, an alluring way with a young woman. Surprise, surprise, yet again. And there are sweatbands all over his shirt. I mean, the man hasn't lost his sweat facility as a result of the Falklands War. <laughs> it's an really? astonishing story, isn't it? It's an astonishing it's story. It's an astonishing story. I, I, I think... It, he is uh, indicative. That's why I, I can't get into the crown that much, because I just find that uh, that whole family, the bloodlines, the little bubble that they live in, so alien, and so I find it so uninteresting. But Gary, you know? the reason you would find it interesting is because the Queen holds it together, and she is clearly for all. Who she her... held it together. She lost me over the the Diana's Diana. death. Yeah, well, that's true, but. Throughout, and we'll, I'm sure we'll come to that in the, in the next series. But she is a 
overall, I think, not a bad person. And I think that she's the reason we watch it because we actually do believe to some degree in her. I mean, I, I don't know about you, I do, and the way she was thrust into power and the way it all happened, and it was very sad and, and tough. She, and she's been a major player in so many of the the political history of Britain and in the 20th century and also the people that she's known. I mean, that's what yeah, we forget. You'd love all that. I mean, there's LBJ yeah. in this one and it's you've, fascinating. You've he talks about Kennedy. Just, just before the we... The Perfumo Affair in Series 2 is really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of historic stuff that you would love. Just before we move on from the royal family, I just wanted to mention in relation to Prince Andrew, what happens over the next few months and couple of years will be really interesting because you remember, Caro, last year on the podcast I reviewed Rebel Prince by Tom Bauer, which is a a new yes. sort of heart-hitting biography of Prince Charles. And uh, it it tracks very much the campaign of Charles and Camilla to reinvent him post-Diana and how they've worked so hard. And part of this has been from about their marriage, which was, what, 2006 or something, onward, they have tried to isolate themselves as the head of the monarchy and flick the minor royals, including Andrew, who Tom Bauer suggests doesn't has never had an all that comfortable relationship, Andrew mm. and Charles. So I think this is another example, and of you know where where Charles may actually just cut a few more ties. Well, as Mum said um, after she saw it, I hope he never gets invited to Highgrove again, <laughs> particularly after <laughs> Charles becomes king. And the other fault of Prince Andrew, he is clearly he's he's thick. He is yeah. so dumb. I mean, then that's probably the worst characteristic as you get older, isn't it? It'll be really interesting to see how Beatrice's fu- the- wedding, um, sorry, not funeral, when Beatrice's wedding next year comes around, it'll be interesting to see what Bra- role Andrew is playing there. Brains has never been a mandatory sort of um, no. thing. For leadership of, generally. For leadership generally, <laughs> well, as we all know. No. But particularly in the royal family. Except I mean, in your case. a huge history, Except in but- your case, Gary, when you were you. heading up Channel 9. Now, you have, we asked you to have a crush of the week, and I did receive your text yesterday afternoon about your crush, and I laughed hysterically thinking, oh, well, that's so predictable. But would you like it, to tell so everybody? predictable, Would it? you like to tell oh, everybody I'm else? with bated breath. One of my uh, indulgences is being addicted to uh, food channels. I just love watching the food shows on TV. And I was flicking over the other night, and there she was again. Get, oh, don't say it, Gilla. <laughs> one of those midnight... You are so predictable. One of those, oh, so, I don't care. <laughs> it's been this was flirtation... Was she in the, fridge, in the fridge in her silk robe licking her fingers? Yes, yes. <laughs> And there she was, she a little chocolate pud or whatever it was, and she oh. dipped it in and she was licking it off. Oh, can the, you not the do fridge, the hand movements? That's really fridge, off-putting. And the fridge light went off, and I just sat there and ah, oh, wonderful. So, wonderful. is she your love? Woman. Is she your love crush or your cooking crush? Uh, both, I think. <laughs> both, I think. And she comes in and out of my life all the time. Like, I go away two or three years, I don't even see her on TV, and then suddenly she's there again. And she's all. She may have aged, or they might be old replays from fifteen years ago when she was going through. And she's better when she's not on a diet, don't you reckon? Oh, yes. When she loses weight, she's not so. Well, either way, <laughs> Carol, I've got to say she's fantastic. Well, I'm pretty. There happy. is just something incredibly alluring about that woman. She is a great performer on television. I'll, I will give you that. But there's something else. There's the voice. There's the. There's magnetism. Right, okay, okay. There's I could get going. Yeah, like. men who are listening to this are just going nuts now. The salmon and prawn curry with pumpkin is pretty nice too. Okay, on to BSF. Thank you for your crush. Um, thank you, Nigella, for uh, being the highlight of Gary's year. And you also <laughs> have a book. Gosh, we're really putting it on you today. Yeah, I've just I'm finishing 
one book at the moment. It's 40 years old, and it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1985, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. He oh, he's a Larry great McMurtry. writer. He wrote the screenplay for uh, Brokeback Mountain and won yeah. the Academy Award for that. he wrote Terms of Endearment. Terms of Endearment and The Last Picture Show. Yes, of course. So there I is, forgot about there that. Are, I thought look, Annie Prieur wrote her own screenplay for Brokeback Mountain. No, no, Mountain. he ended up polishing it. That's how it all happens in Hollywood. And... What a marvellous book, 880 pages, uh, and it's pretty dense, but it's just so beautifully written. And sometimes when you're reading a great novel, it's not what they put in, it's what they leave out, Mm -hmm. okay? And there's this jarring thing. I just came across it last night. One of the key characters, Gus McRae, page 500, he suddenly says he's got this mane of silver hair. And I said, hang on a minute, I've imagined him with dark hair for the previous 499 pages. And it's one of those telling moments where you just drop little bits of information right through a a long book and bring these characters to life. But it's such a superb, for those who haven't read it, get out and have a a read of it. It's two old Texas rangers in about 1863 taking a, a cattle herd off to Montana. Now, that sounds pretty boring and like a stereotypical sort of Western. I don't mind an Outback story. But it's an allegoric tale, this coming of age. It's just got wonderful characters. The other book that I've just um, finished is by Joe Abercrombie called A Little Hatred. And this is the Game of Thrones for adults. I mean, I love fantasy and science fiction. This is just a marvellous, marvellous... I've always been... I got into, I used to write science fiction stories when I was about seven years old in a little exercise book. Think of the money you could make if you ditched William Buckley for I know, great sci-fi. I know. I've got a novel that I've started, which is along those lines, but this is a great book. Great characters, beautiful writing, great pacing, and it'll probably be turned into a TV series, A Little Hatred. A Little Hatred. And what was Larry McMurtry's called? The Dove. Uh, Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove. Which they made, they made an amazing mini series. Mini series out, out of it, yeah. yeah there were which, four books in the series in the end, and they made yeah. mini series out of all of them. They all won Academy Awards. Uh, Caro, you ha- onto food. Thank you, Gary. That's enough now. I'm, it's actually onto screen. Uh, don't, don't mention Nigella, please. It's actually onto screen. You're the oh screen. Oh, I'm today. doing food. That's right. I'm too. A good choice is a film with a title like Ford versus Ferrari. You could go with your friend, your new friend, to mm. this. Ford v Ferrari. Well, I'm here to tell you it's a good film. I had a a bit of text conversation with our friend Mike Sheehan, who I do a lot of movies with last night, and he felt we agreed about the negatives in the film. Some bits are overblown, like a certain thing happens at the start of the Le Le Mans. Is that how you pronounce it? Le Um, Mans. Le Mans in um, 1966, which the film is based around. But, Corrie, like every film you and I seem to have seen over the last few months, it's based on a true story. This always happens, and at the end they show pictures of the real people, which is really interesting. And They did um, that with Fisherman's Friends, didn't they? They did, and they did with Official Secrets, and they did with um, Military Wives, another British film um, festival film I saw. But this one, uh, Matt Damon is really good as Carol Shelby, who is a celebrity car racing driver who, for medical reasons, has to stop racing and becomes a big-name car dealer and designs the Mustang for Ford, among others, and Ken Miles, who is played by... He's such a brilliant actor. Christian Bale. Christian Bale. The great Batman. Yeah. The only real Batman. He was the best Batman. And he was a brilliant Dick Cheney. I mean, that performance was... Have you seen Vice? He's brilliant in that. He overacts in this. He plays a a journeyman car racing driver, a war hero, who... who, um, well, he wasn't in the – he was in the Air Force. Anyway, he's a Brit living in um, America. He's a great mate of Carol Shelby. Together, um, they help Henry Ford II, who's brilliantly played by Tracy Letts, 
take on Ferrari because Enzo Ferrari is going broke. They tried to take over Ferrari and there's a brilliant scene, Corrie, in Italy involving Gianni Agnelli who, of course, double deals with them and um, cons them, as does Enzo Ferrari. He insults Henry Ford. Henry Ford goes, right, we're sick of being staid and boring. We're going to take on – we're going to be the sexy, you know, post-war – we're going to create a new car, and the way we're going to do that is by winning Le Mans. And it, look, it's sorry, just it's, sorry. The, the car racing is a marketing budget matter. Yes, you but would say it. It is a brilliant story about the automotive industry in the 1960s, and it's in America. So there are Mustangs, and there there are some of the most incredible cars. I'm not, you know, me. I couldn't give a jot about cars. Brendan is interested in them. He didn't know the story of Le Mans. I mean, they drive for 24 hours. Yeah, that's right. They drive for 24 hours through the night and day, and there's different drivers, but it is – look, it's just – it's beautifully filmed. I'm not interested, as I said, in car racing, and yet you are just gripped, gripped by Le Mans and the way they do it, except that, unfortunately, there's just a bit of overacting by Christian Bale, which is really surprising. His Mm. mannerisms are too – and yet, you know, there's um, some real mo- moments of pathos and you get a bit upset, you know, a few tears at the end. So would you call it a boy's film? Well, I really enjoyed it. No, But it is a bloke's film, I mm. guess. But it's not all about just the car and the – it's about the relationships. No, it's, it's a very, very, very good film. Where are they think. going to do the Aussie version of that, Ford v Holden? No. <laughs> because that's the defining Australian story. You Who's grew up gonna... in a Ford house or a Holden house, didn't yeah, you? Well, yes, Protestants and, and we, want somebody, different story. we want somebody really charismatic to play Peter Brock, unlike the one who was in the television show on Yeah, Peter Brock. And, and Alan Moffat would be interesting as well. Hugh Jackman is Peter Brock. The singing, the singing. Yeah, you could have a music racing car driver. But the whole point of this is that your your mind's on fire today. Ferrari, you're imaginative and sexy and adventurous. I mean, they're not like like for like. They're completely different. And um, and the marketing guys and the people in the background, the early days of marketing and PR are just fascinating, and what they try and make them do. Now it's an enjoyable film. Uh, okay. Corrie, you have a recipe. I do. Uh, I did not cook this, Caro, on the weekend. Our friend, who actually we often call our slave, well, she was a slave for me on Saturday because she helped me cook, our friend Jo. Oh, you hosted a dunch. I had a dunch. Corrie's invented dunch. What's that? What do you think it is? Dunch. Well, obviously a lunch merged with... Dinner. So dinner. It's, it's sort of new So it was about like, like three or four o'clock in the afternoon, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. Everybody comes at four, glass of champagne. You don't have anything to eat and so for that's, lunch. That's ideal for me because they're all out the door by, by about 10 eight o'clock. o'clock. Yeah, well, eight well, if you're eight a tight house. ass like you. <laughs> you know, at 10 o'clock, it's great and you're all in bed. But particularly for summer, when people want to go swimming or down the beach or play golf or whatever they might do, go for long walks or whatever... You have a light breakfast, and then at four o'clock you're ready to rock and roll. Glass of champagne. Who doesn't love a glass of champagne forget, at four o'clock in the afternoon or a beer? Forget my book here. This is the the best thing I'm going to take away from this podcast. No, it's today. copyright. Dunch. It's copyright. Well, you don't okay. have to have a light breakfast. You I can don't actually want have you to, brunch. You I can have a big. Yeah, you can have a big. I breakfast. hate having yeah. dinners. Right. I hate having dinners. Me over too. Dinner parties are too people exhausting. People don't know how to say goodbye. No, I know. So it's I left get so to me. Tired. Left to me at about eleven thirty, twelve. I go. Okay, it's been great. Thank you very much. No, I, I don't think you're really think rude. rude. No, but no, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm not mad on dinner parties. And so this is the perfect combo for me because you pack in a bit during the day. And if you're the cook or the preparer or the entertainer, you can actually do it that morning because you've got sort of six hours of cooking time. You don't have to do stuff so the day before. Well, I didn't make this, you see, because I, I moved house and everything was oh. overwhelming me. So my friend Joe, who helped with the cooking – 
she arrived with a flourless chocolate torte with blood plum compote. Can I tell you, there is no, clearly flour, there is no flour in this. Sounds this very is the, Nigella. This is so lush. I'm not going to give you the whole process. Did you go down at midnight and dip your finger in, in the leftovers? In my... <laughs> Bond's pyjamas, not quite as sexy as Nigella, but I might have had a little bit the next morning in my jammies. But all this is, Caro and Gary, is six eggs, 100 grams of caster sugar, 100 grams of light brown sugar, 300 grams of dairy-free dark chocolate coverture, which is roughly chopped, two tablespoons of good quality ground coffee, which is a key, and two tablespoons of Dutch cocoa powder. And then you make the blood compote, which you pour over the top uh, when you're finished. The recipe will be in our show notes, but I have to acknowledge the inventor of this recipe, who is Amanda Rubin, who used to have a shop in our village called Cooper and Miller. Um, Cooper and Miller? Miller and Cooper. Cooper and Miller. Cooper and Miller. Uh, which is now owned by someone else. But Amanda invented the Cooper and Miller concept. And she this used to is work her... at the Herald Sun, Amanda. She's a, she's a gun. And, the, and, this, and this cooking book is called Feasting, A New Take on Jewish Food. It's been out a couple of years. It's a fabulous cookbook, not just for this one. But when Joe arrived with this uh, rather unassuming, you know, it's just pretty plain at the beginning. But when you serve it up and you eat it and put the cherries on top and the cream, oh, my God. God, it is such so a great recipe. there are cherries on top as well. Yeah, well, you make the you make the you make, oh, sorry blood plum. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry, getting confused <laughs> with my fruit. The blood plum plum compote, which is blood plums, juice of two oranges, um, orange zest, caster sugar, and vanilla paste. Such a great I've recipe. Thank you, Joe. I've planted a plum tree in my garden. Well, here you go, Carrie. This is the recipe of the summer. This is so easy. Are they yellow in the middle on their blood plums? Yeah, the blood plums. So it's got that beautiful red. It looks quite. Um, it, when you put it on the plate, it does look, I wouldn't say strudely, but it does look quite Viennese or quite European, and the cake is so light. So there you go. Uh, grumpy, Caro, what are you grumpy about? Oh, look, this is not a hard one this week. This is something that has been grinding my gears, as Clem, my daughter, would say, for months. You know how I hate lazy language? I mean, I hate the word invite. It's not an invite, it's an invitation. When did invite become a noun? Anyway. When did teams verse each other? Oh, well, uh, that's something our kids have started, isn't it? Yeah. Who are you? Who are we versing this yeah. week, Mum? Um, <laughs> the word... Oh, honestly, pedants, come on. The word up. porn added to any noun. Like food porn? Food porn. I watched um, an episode... Nigella porn. I watched an episode of that... Um, Modern Love, that's a great new series on Prime Amazon. Oh, don't get me start. Don't get my husband started on Disney having a new streaming service. That's his grumpy. Well, how many streamers can we have? But she did it. There was a, an episode about she was looking for a father figure and this guy she met at work was dad porn. I mean, I don't know. Porn, to oh, me. That's a massive turn off from, right from the start. I know. I know. Porn to me, and food porn is one that really upsets me. Um, sport porn. People use the word porn now to describe anything that's sort of hedonistic, over the top, fulsome, fantastic. No, porn to me. It's pornography. Conjures up, to me, pictures of something that is um, often perverted, often really, really anti-women. There are so many things I don't like about it, often violent. I'm not bagging all porn, but... No, porn is porn. It's not something you associate with meals, parents or sport or gardens for that matter. Someone said the other day some show was like watching garden porn, you know, some about this beautiful <laughs> rose garden. No, no. 
It's a beautiful garden. Do you, can you get my drift? Uh, yeah, uh, no, I, I do. I do. Caro still gets angry. Still gets oh, angry. Oh, come on! It's just, it's just, the, it's wrong. She gets, she's increasingly getting angry, Gary. She gets older. Okay, so I ha- thank you for that, Caro. And I have a question for you in our six quick questions. These are supposed to be quick, Gary. So just remember that. Well, Caro, Cor- could take her own advice there, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you were mean to your friend, Caro? No, when was the last time you were fresh aired? Oh. On the weekend. Are you going to name names? Well, yeah, Can completely. Can you just explain what's fresh airing again? To ignore someone. You know, when you, you go, oh, they fresh aired me at a party or something. Oh, so just comp- see you, you have eye contact, and then they look away. Yeah. Is, yeah. This, right. a, is this also, is, this, is fresh aired a, another version of crucifying the English language, Caroline? No, I don't mind fresh aired. I think, in, in fact, you know who I first heard it from? Sam Newman. He used it, I think, on the footy show or something years and years ago, and it's probably the one good thing I've taken away from Sam Newman. Anyway, um, I was walking through my local village with our friend Trudes, our walking friend, and we'd had a coffee, and he spotted Tom Lynch, you know, my hero, the one who plays for Richmond, not the one who plays for Adelaide. And, you know, as you can imagine, I'm, I don't know Tom partial. Lynch. I've interviewed him over the phone. So you're in your trekkie walking gear, no yeah. makeup. He's having coffee with a group of friends, and Trudes goes, "Oh, you know, don't look now. You know, three o'clock to the whatever." And, and of um, course, you had you've to done say the big hello. 180. No, no, I just went hello. Well, I, no, I thought he was looking up at us, and I raised my hand. I wasn't going to stop and have a long talk about the Tigers or his brilliant performance in Year One or anything mm. like that. I just raised my hand, just. Well, no, you might, maybe he gave didn't me re- nothing. Maybe he didn't recognise. That's you. what I'm hoping. I'm hoping I look so feral, and I did have sunglasses on. Tom Lynch, could you phone in and tell us whether you recognised a rather <laughs> well, uh, middle-aged woman in I a tracksuit pants? I, said to Trudy, you I don't know whether he saw me or not. You know, and Trudy was too nice to say anything. So did you feel humiliated or embarrassed? I was a little bit sorry that he hadn't waved back. It would have been nice, Gary. What's it like having your face on a Sydney billboard? Bizarre. You and John Stanley did. In fact, I saw you on the back of a bus once. Yeah, we're on the back of buses. They they had a, an advertising slogan for our program, and it was called uh, "Good Heads for Radio," <laughs> which was a very clever line because we're both bald and you know not exactly Brad Pitt. That's mean. Well, you're, was, quite, it, you're quite good looking. No, quite they didn't mind. They're, they're well, both self facing. They didn't mind. And it. I think it was the the quirkiness of the campaign. And suddenly you've got a lot of people coming up to you in supermarkets. I'd go down to the local supermarket and they'd come up and say, are you the guy on, um, uh, what was then, 2UE? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, we love your show. We love listening to you. But people suddenly began recognising you. And I've always been a, you know, just a journo. An, anonym, the scenes, an anonymous a, a celebrity. Somewhere. Yeah, and I'm very private as well. And I, I was really uncomfortable with that for a while because you just, you, you go out in public and, you know, Maria, my wife, would just roll her eyes you know, occasionally, whenever I'm stuck in a supermarket aisle it's like with being, someone. It's, Gaz, it's like being friends with Caroline Wilson. It well, is. You start she, talking to her and all of a sudden someone else grabs her and takes, she, it, she's takes got, her away. She's got used to it, though. Oh, she's, no, learned, no, she's learned how to cope with fame. I was going to make a, a general um, observation about that. In Melbourne, I mean, certainly FM radio stars are on billboards, but the secret of places like 3AW and the ABC and even SEN is that they don't put their faces on billboards. Like in Sydney, they do. And so it's a completely different dynamic. And I reckon it's why Sydney brought, I mean, I'm not speaking about Mm. you, but why Sydney broadcasters get paid a lot more money because they make them the stars, not the station. And it's just a very different environment. I mean, Melbourne radio um, compared to Sydney radio are two different worlds. And it's not just the volume or the hectoring that goes on, the aggressiveness 
Um, you know, you can have a bit of aggressiveness in Melbourne radio, but I always love being back in Melbourne and listening to Melbourne radio and being among Melbourne people because it's just quieter. The yeah. to- it's, and there's a bit more gravitas, down. don't you think, with the discussion yes, and abso- debate? absolutely. Sydney is a much more superficial town. I you didn't know, say that, Sydney listeners. I did not say that. Our guest from Sydney said that. It's mutton dressed up we'll as it's mutton dressed up as lamb, but it doesn't exactly look like lamb anymore either, Sydney. <laughs> it's a pretty rough look. But Melbourne certainly does. I mean, I love coming in. I see my kids. Uh, we walk down the streets in Brunswick, and um, you know, it's just so vibrant. And you go to Sydney, and it's empty at night. It's a ghost town. That's yeah, my kids' and friends it's just say dead. that. And so okay. because everyone huddles in their own little tiny areas and they never travel because the traffic is too bad. Okay, we're loving this, but we have to move on. Because, yes. um, you know, Caro and I could talk about Sydney, Melbourne forever. Caro, what is it about plans that brings out the worst in people, do you think? I think it's, um, and it's usually celebrities, or they're the ones you hear about, or sports stars, free alcohol. Oh. Free alcohol, a sense of entitlement, and the fact that people just get edgy, I think, about being in small spaces for a long time, even those who fly business class and first class. What's that guy, um, I am Will or Will am I? Or, oh, Will, will I, I am. am. I mean, Please. what a jerk. He, he's posted the, the face of this poor flight attendant. He's named her. He's given all her social media details, accusing her of being racist. Because she told him to turn the music down or something, didn't she? Or turn his headphones... He had noise-cancelling headphones on and she was saying, you've got to listen to the announcements and there was this big dispute. It turned into a big fracas. She is now... She should sue him. Well, she, she is. She quite been, us a back Oh, that's good. She's yeah. been shamed publicly. But but it, what what a dick. I mean, seriously, what an entitled dick. And um, I just get... I mean, I, I don't know... We, you know, it used to be a great thing to write about as a sports, as a full-time football writer. There was always bad behaviour of footy teams on planes. And usually because they drink, they're entitled and they're in a small space and basically they're just ordinary up-themselves people. Corey, I love your questions, Corey. If you go back to your 19-year-old self, Prince Andrew or Prince Albert, oh, be honest. Oh, well, this was a really tough one because I did have to go back to my 19-year-old self, but I would have to say Prince Andrew and I thought he looked his most handsome on his wedding day to Fergie. Having said that, Prince Albert, he was very good looking in the day before he started losing his hair. No offence, Gary, you don't have any hair, but you know what I but mean. But he never really did, so oh. we've known him that way for a long time. <laughs> but he, he's but so he had, handsome. But he had, he had a good mop of blonde hair, um, which I think is inherited from his mother, Princess Grace, and uh, lots of lovely palaces in Monaco. That really appealed to me. But I think I have to say on paper, probably, and looks, Prince Andrew back in the day. Certainly not now. As my grandmother used to say, those Grimaldis, they were a very ordinary lot. They really were a terrible lot. Gary, um, question to you. Was Caro ever late with her copy? Oh, God, that's a bit unfair. Does, does Dolly Parton sleep on her back? <laughs> of course. I feel, the, I feel the tone of today's podcast has gone down a level or two. <laughs> it was worth waiting for, though, Gaz. When I was editing, and this was this applied to every editor who's ever edited with Caro, always gets fantastic stories, and you can't wait to get them into the newspaper. But those, but. those hours in the lead-up to deadline, I mean, I had a full head of hair <laughs> when I started working <laughs> with Caro. That, no, that, is, that is, you've told just But there's the always... You always know it's going to get to the death knock. When I first met Carol, I thought, she's a pretty tough Juno, and she is, and always has been. But 
I also saw how vulnerable she could she could be when sometimes she did a story that really emotionally affected her. And there was a few stories there at the Sunday Age that oh. I always remember you, you know, having tears in your eyes talking about. The, there was a victim, I think, of a tragedy that you had to go and interview. And you came back and you were so emotionally affected, you found it a real struggle to write the story for that a while. That was a husband with a quadruplet, that's right, quadruplets that's right. in Tasmania yeah. whose wife had been killed by a shark yeah, attack. Yeah, but, oh. you, but you know, I'll give her a due. She, she could never very late with the copy, but it arrived just at the death knock, but it was always worth it. It was oh. always worth receiving the copy in the end because it was always a great story. And you are and you are number one member of the Caroline Wilson fan club. Um, I am. Oh, always. Actually, I'm, number two because I'm probably yeah, number one. Yeah, you are. Uh, Corey, okay. I guess, I guess all of that was a, that she is often late with her copy. Yeah. Yes. Uh, my GLT. Okay. <laughs> no, so, I was at the death knock is what he said. <laughs> What's your GLT, Corey? Um, this is an old Peggy Perkin tip, so a little nod to my mum. Having moved house this week, her advice to me years ago was, before you do anything else, make your bed in your new home. And I would go a step further and say, set up your whole bedroom. So if everything else around you is mayhem, at least your little dressing table or the books beside the bed, a glass of water, you know, whatever it is that floats your boat in your bedroom, at least you have a little oasis at the end of that shocking first day. Thank goodness this is what I did on the day that we moved. What I have fallen for in the past, though, was I... Years ago when I moved, I packed all of the sheets, dunas, pillow slips, everything into a box, one of 300 boxes, and come ready time, you know, let's do the pig perkin thing of making the bed. What box is the linen in? (laughs) It's the bed linen. So put the bed linen in your car when you drive to your new home, get it out of the car, and hopefully the removalists have already set up your bed and make your bed. Best tip ever. We moved about two years ago, and I remember the, the crisis because I couldn't find the Nigella Lawson posters to stick them up on the wall of the bedroom. <laughs> I don't believe Maria would allow that. <laughs> you are a sick puppy, but we loved having you, Gary. It's been great. I really love um, seeing you guys again. Oh, it's so nice to catch up, and we just wish you all the best for Buckley's Chance, the incredible true story of William Buckley and how he conquered a new world. It's published by Penguin. It's a fabulous paperback at thirty four ninety nine. It is doing very well, I'm happy to report, at my bookshop and other bookshops around the place and we wish you continued success and uh, good luck with the film deal. Mm, who would play? I wonder if Hugh Jackman would play uh, William Buckley. Well, throwing anyway. his name up. Yeah. <laughs> it's a musical. He's going to be very busy. Kara's already been to the musical. Yeah. I would like to uh, thank Miss Jane, of course, and a reminder to all of our potties, our Christmas podcast, just get in touch with Tara and look at the show notes for all the details there. And please tell your friends and family to subscribe to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I know it sounds like we're kind of um, trying to harness a gang for our own egos, but it actually does help. The more stars and ratings and viewings we get, it helps other people to find us. Caro, that was a lovely show, and what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger, Corrie.